Amen. Amen. How are we doing, church? Doing all right? If you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. If you've been around for a while, uh, you should be able to find Acts. If you're new to us, it's over in the New Testament. Uh, Acts chapter 16, uh, just by confession, I need to tell you that I grew up in the racist South. And I grew up very, uh, I would say, racist and prejudiced. And the reason I mention both words is because race requires power. And as an eight-year-old, I don't know how much power I had. But I was taught, mostly by church folk, that there were certain groups of people that went certain areas, and those people weren't supposed to mix, and that this kind of church was for that person. And I was actually taught that my kind, I wasn't really a church person. And, and that, that's, that's sort of what I grew up in, and just honestly, as a child, just didn't even know better. I mean, how do you know? The people that you look up to and authorities in your life act that way and talk that way and teach that way. And now, by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I am the lead pastor of a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you want to know, how did you get there? Was it some kind of experience or was it something you learned or did you just, you know, is there a progressive culture that you just finally caught up with? No, 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 no. It was a right understanding of God and who he is and the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was studying that this book that led me to the place to understand that this Jesus dying on the cross thing, this thing that we call church, that it is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus. So I need you to put on your big boy theological pants right now. And if you, it, normally in a Pastor Joby sermon, here's how it goes. Really dial in for the first part. You can doodle during the middle, hang in at the end, and you'll get saved, okay? But you can't do that right now. If you doze off for a second in here, you'll be lost and you'll have no idea where we are. So we're going to do from Genesis to Revelation, and basically what I have for you is about a 45-minute introduction to get to Acts chapter 16 and a five-minute sermon, and then we'll wrap it up. But you've got to pay attention. You've got to keep up, okay? Um, because a right understanding of God will help you think right and show you how to rightly treat one another. So it starts, the place that I have to start is we got to go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis chapter 1 is where we begin with why this thing is a movement for all people not just church people, it's not just white people, it's not just religious people, it's not just southern people, it's for movement for all people. And, and it begins with the character and nature of God himself. You see, before there was a beginning, there is God. One God in three persons. And God in and of himself is a relationship with himself. This is why 1 John chapter 4 says that God is love. And God is both the subject and object of God's own love for God's self. And he's one God in three persons. And so when you get to chapter 1, verse 26, the Bible says, then God said, let us, who's us? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then let us make man in our image after our likeness. So one God in three persons is going to create humankind, and they're not all going to look the same. Why? Because God in and of himself is a community. God in, in, in and of himself is a diversity. There's not three sons, three Holy Spirits, three fathers in one. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit in one. And his very creation of humanity is a reflection that we serve a creative and diverse God. 
and one set of people just don't do it for God. And so this is called the Imago Day that every single person on this planet who has ever breathed, and actually a whole bunch of people that never got a chance to breathe yet, every single human being was an image bearer, is an image bearer of God. That you, every time you come eyeball to eyeball with anybody, people just like you, people not like you, you are face to face with an image bearer of the almighty God. And you cannot simultaneously honor God and mistreat his image. It's impossible. So that's where it starts. That from the very beginning, that was the point. God was not lonely. God was not up in heaven. Like, what are we going to do with all this space? You know, we're running out of room in heaven. I'm going to have to dump some of it on earth. That is not how it went. That out of an overflow of God's love for God's self, it spills over into creation. And, and we see in our creation how creative our God is. There's over 600 types of beetles. You understand what I'm saying? And there's all different kind of people. And there's not even just the categories we put people in, right? Even in whatever category we come up with, there's a bazillion subcategories of those kind of people. And God says, yeah, I, need, I want all of those kind of people to be worshiping me, to be glorifying me, to be image bearers of me. So it starts with this. Then if you go to Genesis chapter 12, it says this in verse 2. And I will make you, he's talking to Abraham. At this point, his name's Abram. He's gonna change it to Abraham. Abraham is father Abraham. We know him as the father of our faith. He says, and I'm gonna make you, Abraham, a great nation. He's talking about the nation of Israel. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that, there's a so that there. He's not just doing that for the heck of it, but there's a so that. Here's the reason God is gonna bless Abraham and there's gonna be this nation of Israel. So that you will be a blessing. So he's not a cul-de-sac of God's blessing. He's a conduit of God's blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, here it goes, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's mission from the very beginning of a relationship with his people was not that one people was better than another people, but he was gonna use a people to reach all people. So this whole all people idea, I didn't make it up. I just got it out of the book. That's what he's saying. And the blessing that he's talking about here is the person of Jesus Christ. That out of Abraham are gonna come 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes become Israel. Israel becomes the nation of Israel. And out of the nation of Israel becomes a Messiah, the Christ, Jesus Christ himself. He is the blessing that calls all people unto himself. That's what the whole, from Genesis 12 to all the way to Malachi, that's what the whole point is. So who's the blessing? Who's the blessing? Where's the blessing? Is he on his way? Where's the blessing? And then when you get to the New Testament, the blessing shows up. In John chapter one, verse 29, John the Baptist is out baptizing people and he makes the announcement and the pronouncement of the blessing that he's actually shown up. It says this in verse 29, the next day he, that's John the Baptist, he saw Jesus as his first cousin coming toward him and he said, behold, which means, everybody pay attention, this is important, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of who? Of the world. We talk about this all the time. He's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the entire world. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a preamble to the fact that one day the Lamb of God was coming to take away the sin of the entire world. 
the, the, the day of atonement, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was another lamb of God, I mean, another lamb was shed and the blood covered over our sin for one year, but just of the Israelites. And now you've get this, the fulfillment of that shows up in the person of Jesus and John the Baptist goes, here he is, here he is. He is the lamb of God. And he's come to take away, not cover over, take away the sin of not just the Jewish people for one year, but for the entire world. That means you too. And then Jesus gets to work in the book of John. He starts teaching and preaching and doing miracles and he goes to a wedding and they run out of wine and he makes more, all right? Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Baptist. So you don't smoke, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> That's what he does. And then when you get to chapter three, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. We covered this a few weeks ago. Probably the most famous Christian verse in the whole Bible, John three sixteen. Here's what Jesus says. For God so loved the world, not one particular people group over anybody else. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So God's mission from before there was a beginning was that when he sent Jesus on this rescue mission that Jesus was coming for the world, for all the nations, for every single person, for the whosoevers of this world. So if you fall in the whosoever category, then guess what? Jesus came for you. And then what you have to understand about the Gospel of John is the Gospel of John, John primarily writes his book, his letter, and, and he's describing who Jesus is in regards to signs and wonders. And there are seven statements that Jesus makes in the book of John that are tied to seven miracles in the book of John. Seven is the number of completion. And, and seven times Jesus makes these I am statements. He says things like, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am all these things. He does it seven different times. And when he says, I am, that is a translation of the name of God. God's name, Yahweh, in English is best translated, I am that I am. And so seven times, Jesus is saying, I am. Like the God that you have been worshiping and looking to, I am him here on this earth. And every single time, that Jesus did a miracle in the book of John, it's called a sign or a wonder. Now here's the thing about a sign that you have to understand, is that a sign is not the thing, a sign points to the thing. Like when you drive into Jacksonville, and it's, there's a big sign that says Jacksonville, that's not actually Jacksonville. That thing points to what is Jacksonville. And so what, G, what if all through the book of John, what Jesus is doing when he performs miracles, that the miracles were not the point in and of themselves, but essentially what Jesus was doing to demonstrate that he is the great I am is that he's peeling back the curtain between earth and heaven and he's saying, oh, you want to see what heaven's like? You, you want to see what it's like when I am reigning on my throne as the great I am? You want to see that that's like, okay, well, let me just show you a miracle, which you see it as a miracle, but from Jesus' perspective, it's not a miracle. Like if you were a two-dimensional person and you came up to a line on, a, on the sheet of paper that you lived in in your two-dimensional world, you would see um, getting around that line is absolutely impossible. How am I gonna get over it, right? If my only dimensions in my world are length and width and I've got this line from that end of the paper to that end of the paper, how do I get past that line? It is impossible. 
until a three-dimensional person walks onto your piece of paper and says, it's not even hard. You just step over it like this. And so what that three-dimensional person seems like a normal day, the 2D people see you like, ah, it's a miracle. And so Jesus steps on the scene, almighty maker of heaven and earth. And he's like, oh, man, water to wine? That's not even hard. Watch. Here, just drink this. Oh, you can't see? Here. And he spits on the ground and wipes it in this brother's eyes. I don't know why, because he can. Go wash your face. And the guy's like, I can see. Oh, you think your daughter's dead? She's not dead. She's just asleep. Come here, girl. Get up. Oh, everybody's hungry? Here, give me your Lunchable. All right, pass this out. It's not even hard. Doesn't even like break a sweat. Hey, Lazarus, you thought you were dead? Come on out of there, man. Whew, take a shower. You stinketh. That's what he's saying. And what if on each one of those, he's peeling back the curtains and saying, hey, check this out. This miracle is a sign. That's not the point. I mean, I love Lazarus, but guess what? In about 20 years, he's going to die again. So that's not the point. The lame man that walked, guess what? He quit walking because he died. The blind man that could see, he could only see till he died. And he couldn't see no more. You see that? The only, the only eternal miracle is salvation. So these miracles that he's doing is just pointing, just peel back the curtains, peer in here and see what heaven's like. You see, in heaven, nobody gets hungry. Nobody gets hungry because my father's throwing this everlasting party for the younger son who has come home and there's plenty to eat for everybody. In fact, when we finish our party in heaven and the cleanup crew comes through, then guess what? There's going to be 12 baskets. There's enough baskets for every tribe and every tongue and every nation and we're going to fill those up because that's what heaven's like. Oh, and you can't walk? Well, come on, get up and walk. Get up and walk. Pick up your mat and get up and walk. Why? Because in heaven, nobody walks with a limp or a swagger. We're just cruising around on streets of gold. Oh, you can't see? Well, here's the thing. I need you to be able to see because Jesus is the light of the world. And one day you're going to stand before his throne and you want to see what's going on. I mean, the laser light show going on in heaven is legit. Flip to the end of the book and check it out. I mean, it's cool. And so he does this all the way through the book of John. And then, and then by the time you get to John 17, you're getting towards the end of Jesus's life and he prays the high priestly prayer. And so he kneels down and he prays, and there's three kind of sections to this prayer. First section of the prayer, he prays for himself. And then he shifts gears in the second section of the prayer, and he prays for the disciples that are there with him, the current disciples and apostles. He prays for them. And then when you get to verse 20, he shifts gears in this prayer. And he says, I do not ask for these only. These only are the disciples who I just finished praying for. I don't, I'm not just praying for these disciples but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's us. Right now, did you realize that when Jesus was walking on this earth, he was praying for you and me. He literally prayed for us in this very moment right now. He prayed for those of us who will believe. So he is praying for his future church. And here's what he prays, that they, this is us, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so they also may be in us so that, anytime the Bible says so that, it's very, very important. You wonder, why does God want us to be one? Why does God want the church to be unified? Here's the so that. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's why. So how is the world going to know that, that, God, that God the Father sent Jesus Christ? Well, because of the way we vote and we stand up for moral... No, because of the bumper stickers on our car. 
I'm going to put an 1122, and I'm going to put a big fish for dad and a little fish for mom and three little guppies for our three children. And then they will, no. The way, one of the key ways that they, the world, is going to see that Jesus is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises is that the church is one. So he says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That's big. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, and they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. My contention is this is the miracle or the sign that Jesus is praying for his church. All the other signs, Jesus has been peeling back the curtain so that the days of this world could get a glimpse of the glory of heaven and say, I want that. I surrender my life to the Lordship of Christ. If that's what the Father has planned for us, oh, wash away this sin, I want to follow you. And then when he turns, when he turns over the keys to the kingdom of heaven to the church, to those who will believe, to us, here's what he prays. God, it's going to be people from all different nations and all different tongues and all different nationalities and all different thought processes and all of that. And they are going to join together. And, and when the world, when the world, the sign that is going to point to the greater thing, the thing that if you peel back the curtain so that the, the disbelieving world can really believe that I am who I say I am, that I died on the cross for their sins, is when you open up the doors of the church and you peer in there, what they are going to see is they are going to see a oneness amongst all kind of different people that isn't represented anywhere else in this world. And then the people of this world are going to look at that and they're going to be, now that's a miracle. I mean, those groups of people usually don't get along. I mean, you got, you got Southerners and Yankees like all together. You got white folk, black folk all here together. You got Bulldogs and that team down South all here together just true. And the world would see that sign. This is what I think from John chapter 17. And they would say, something's going on in there. There's something that they have that I'm just missing. There's something in there and it will, it will begin to stir up the eternity in every man and woman's heart that God put in them to say, you know what? I was built for that. That that's what this thing is so about. And in our current racial climate in our country, the local church is the only hope. The local church is the only hope. And historically, the local church has failed miserably when it comes to this. Sunday morning still are the most segregated hour in our culture and country. And, and according to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the purposes of God and his creation, that shall not be so. And so I think Jesus is saying, even if you were to talk to our own specific church, Hey, Church of 1122, you, you, you want to prove to the world that the Father sent the Son to live and to die and to be resurrected so that we could be adopted into the family? Here's how you do it. That it would be a movement for all people, all kind of people, all color people, all orientations of people, all different voting blocks of people, all different mindsets of people, and all people would come together and would be one in a supernatural way like the Father is one with the Son and the Son is one with the Father. 
And now, if he's peeling back the curtain to get a glimpse of heaven through the church, then what is he looking at? Here's what I think he's pointing to. If you go to the end of the book, the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter five, verses nine and 10 says this. And they sang a new song. By the way, that's why we don't sing the same old songs forever and ever, okay? We gotta throw a new one in there, right? And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. In other words, you look around heaven, it is not a homogeneous unit of people. It's people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Revelation chapter seven. And by the way, if you are new to Bible study, I would encourage you not necessarily to start your Bible study in the book of Revelation, but I am a professional. I can weave us in and out of there very safely tonight. Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 10 say this. After this, I, by the way, this is John, the same John that wrote what we were reading earlier. John says, after this, I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages and standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. You hear that people that don't like the music too loud? You're not going to love heaven. Okay. Crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Again, Revelation 15, 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. I mean, I got some rough news for some people. If you don't like people that don't look like you, you ain't going to like heaven at all. You won't fit in at all, which what that means is, is that there's some sanctifying work that the Lord Jesus needs to do in your life to prepare you to be ready to glorify God in heaven. Like that's the point and the purpose. And so when I say that my, one of my deepest desires is that the church of 1122 would look a lot more like heaven, this is what I'm talking about. Every tribe, every tongue, every race, every nation, so let me just say something. Let me, I, let me just say this. Anytime a white dude talks about race, all the white people get real nervous. They just do. They're like, what is he going to say? All right. Every time I talk, y'all get nervous. I get it. <laughs> but let me just say straight up, we are a movement for all people. What I, what I love about Manivia's video is this. is she says, why don't I be what I'm hoping is going to happen? So let me just say, if you don't look like me, praise God. God didn't make you to be like me. Praise God. I need you to go get more people like you and bring them here. So let me say it, what I told many of you. If you, if you leave because there's not, a, if you're a brown person and you leave because there ain't enough brown people, that's ludicrous. Help, help us be who God has called us to be and not just in attendance, in serving and in influencing and in, and in leading. And when I stumble because of my upbringing and when I've got blind spots, because check it out, I'm a white dude from the South, have been and will be, you know, I am who I am and that you would help me by, by in, in friendship and conversation. And if I've got specks in my eyes, you would lovely, lovely, pull out the log in yours and then help me get that out of mine, those kinds of things. And that's what it means for iron to sharpen iron and one friend to sharpen another so that we would do this thing together. And you see, and we're going to be joined together in heaven that way. 
So Jesus prays, church, church, you're on a mission to take the gospel to the four corners of the earth and the way that they are gonna know is not by your pastor's incredible preaching. <laughs> the way they're gonna know is by the unity in the church. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives the great commission, the great commission, here's what he says. Basically, after Jesus has lived and died and been resurrected and right before he floats back up into heaven, it's called the ascension, he essentially looks at the, there's about 120 followers right there and he looks at him and essentially goes, all right, I've done my part, now it's your turn. The unfinished work is that now the church needs to proclaim the gospel and I'm, I'm handing you the keys and here's what he says in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, about 120 people, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you wonder where we got our mission statement, I ripped it off from Jesus. Ready? <laughs> Go. Remember what movements do? They move. That sounds like a movement, doesn't it? Therefore, Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations. This is a movement for all people baptizing them. You know what you do when you discover a relationship with Jesus? You go out into the water and you say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and we dunk you. That's when you get baptized, when you discover your relationship with Jesus. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that have commanded you. That means after you get dunked, after you discover your relationship with Jesus, then you are on a lifelong journey of deepening your obedience to him, or deepening. And behold, he says, I am with you always. You know what that's called? A relationship. That this is where the vision statement from 11, for 1122 came from. I thought if it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for 1122. So that's what we do. In the book of Acts, here's how Luke records it. Luke records Jesus saying these words in Acts 1.8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. And here's where you will be his witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So remember, all the way back to Genesis chapter one, the great triune God, as he creates creation, he creates it for all different kind of people and all kind of different purposes. And yet when sin breaks that relationship, then he is on a pursuit for all of those tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples to draw back unto himself. And then when Jesus comes and accomplishes the reconciling work that it takes for us to be in that relationship with God, then he says, now go, and I want you to go everywhere. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, right here where you live, in Judea, like the county, in Samaria, that means people that don't look like you and that you have a different worldview from, and even to the ends of the earth. And in that moment, when all the disciples and the apostles received that commission, guess what they did? They stayed, they stayed. They never left Jerusalem. For the next seven chapters of Acts, the most faithful men in the whole world, because there's not very many of them at this point, Peter gets up, Peter preaches a sermon, 3,000 people get saved, you think the church is on the move? Whoo, here we go. And then the early Christians huddled up and said, nah, this ain't for all people, this is for our people. There's us and there's them. And from Acts 1.8, 
to the end of chapter 7, the disciples never leave Jerusalem to take the gospel. And the reason is because the number one problem was the leadership in the church. And here's what the leaders in the church began to think. They began to think, you have to be like us to believe like us. That's what they thought. That's important. You've got to be like us culturally and racially and socioeconomically and religiously. You got to be like us before we'd ever let you believe like us. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a little motivation. And the way God motivates the church to accomplish his vision for his church to, or, or to accomplish the great commission, the way God motivates him is in Acts chapter eight, verse one. It says, and Saul approved his edu- uh, execution that, that Saul was a religious terrorist and in a little while he's gonna become the apostle Paul. So you think you've got a cool testimony, nothing compared to this guy. And he is approving the, the stoning of Stephen, one of the very first deacons, I mean, you want to talk about a bummer. You're all, you think, hey, man, I just became a deacon. And then you're dead in the next chapter, all right? It says, and Saul approved his execution. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. So what God commands in Acts 1.8, they are disobedient to. And so he, put, he, he begins to persecute them so that they will be obedient, not even really by choice, kind of forced obedience in Acts chapter 8.1. And as they go running all over the place, because they're running from Saul and his minions who are going to try to kill him, everywhere they go, the gospel goes. You know why? Because they're there and the gospel's in them. And so they go and they start sharing the gospel all over the place. And, in, and shortly after that, shortly after chapter 8 of Acts, Philip... He leads an Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. He's kind of walking by one day and here's this guy reading his Bible and he's like, I don't know what this means. And the Holy Spirit says, Philip, go tell him what it means. And he sits down next to him and he leads him to Jesus and he baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch. And then a lot of church fathers believe and theologians believe that that guy went back to his homeland in Africa and he planted a church. And so in the 1400s, you got all these Kenyan Christians who are like, where did they come from? Because God had this movement going on in Africa. And then God saves this religious terrorist Saul. He's on the road to Damascus because he is going to persecute the church. And on his way to Damascus, this bright light blinds him. Jesus kind of drop kicks him off his horse. And he's like, and he says, why are you persecuting me? Paul's like, I ain't persecuting you. I'm persecuting the church. He's like, yeah, same thing because I, that's my body here on earth. Saul is radically saved, becomes the apostle Paul, kind of does this Holy Spirit Bible study for a little while. And then the apostle Peter, he gets this vision for the Gentiles. It's one of my favorite visions in the Bible because Peter is kosher because he's a Jewish guy. And then God gives him this vision of all these different kinds of meats, like bacon. (laughs) If your God tells you don't eat bacon, that's not a good God. Can we get a witness? I mean, every good and perfect gift comes from above. That's got to be talking about bacon. Praise God. And so he sees this sheet with all these different kind of unclean foods falling down from heaven in this vision. And then God commands him, therefore, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Praise God. We're two weeks away from deer season. That is my favorite verse in the New Testament during this time of the year. Get up, kill, and eat. And if you're a vegan, don't worry about it. We're a movement for all people, okay? (laughs) I love a vegetarian. I do, man. I think a deer's a vegetarian. I love them, all right? So... So then God says, Peter, I want you to go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is this Italian Gentile guy. 
And right about that time he gets this vision, this guy shows up from Cornelius' house and says, Peter, uh, God told us to come get you and take you to see Cornelius. And Peter's like, what, are you sure? Shows up in his house, Cornelius starts asking questions. Peter just shares the gospel because that's what he does. The Holy Spirit falls on this Gentile guy. He's speaking in tongues. Peter's like, what is going on here? Then you get to chapter 11 of Acts and the church hears about it. The religious people at the church, Acts chapter 11, verse one, it says, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, which sounds like the worst party to ever attend. Can we just be honest about that? Get that invitation. Be like, I don't think so, okay? So what the circumcision party is, they were the people leading the charge that says, you gotta be like us in order to believe like us. I mean, that's tough, right? What they were saying specifically is, you've gotta obey all the Jewish rules before you can ever have a relationship with Jesus. And so the circumcision party criticized Peter, and here's what they said. You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them? You know what that sounds like? I mean, that is not too foreign to, um, uh, excuse me, but, but this isn't the church for you. I mean, you have your church and we have our church. And I'm telling you, I have had heated conversations with family members of mine that are longstanding members of their church and people that don't look like them show up to what they think is their church. This is why I tell you, this is not my church. Don't you tell me I go to your church. I don't have a church. This is this Jesus's church. We go to church together. If you're here and I'm here, then we're here. It's our church, okay? And so these folks are like, you ate with who? And Peter, and the rest of chapter 11, Peter just goes, hey, listen, uh, listen, I don't know, man. I was minding my own business. God gave me this vision of bacon. I'm like, who doesn't love bacon? Praise God. And then I went to Cornelius' house and I just started, I just told him about who Jesus is. That's what I thought we were supposed to do. I remember Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples. So I'm just talking about Jesus. And then Cornelius, the Holy Spirit falls on him. He's speaking on tongues. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's a Christian. And then you get to Acts chapter 15. Again, this is all intro. I'll get to the sermon in just a second. So then you get to Acts chapter 15. I hate to get there before we set up Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 15, the church, this is the very first church business meeting in the history of church. And here's what they do. They do what most churches do. We need to get together and vote on whether God can do what God's been doing. That's what they do. God's been saving Gentiles and now the church is gonna get together and vote on, can he do that or not? And primarily what they're talking about is Do you have to be circumcised to be saved? Do you have to follow Moses' Old Testament law in in order to have a relationship with Jesus? Now listen, some of you think it's hard to join our church, okay? You gotta go to a covenant member member class, you gotta be an owner, not just a receiver. But you know what? We don't require any surgery whatsoever. (laughs) This is what they're talking about. So in this, you you gotta read all this on your own later. But during this, they're, they're, they're having these confrontations. Peter gets up, he tells his story. He's like, listen, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit fell down upon Cornelius when he received Jesus. I'm pretty sure he's our brother. Meanwhile, Cornelius is in the back, just speaking in tongues. They're like, see? Then Paul gets up and the Bible says, has a sharp disagreement because Paul is trying to take the gospel to the rest of the world. And then James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and speaks. Now think about that. 
By the way, if you're kind of on the fence about this whole Christianity thing, can I point you to James? I'll say it this way. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the almighty son of God, the lamb of God who was here to take away the sins of the entire world? I have a brother. He's all right. (laughs) But if he came to me and said, "Uh, Joby, behold, (laughs) I am. uh, Shut up, man. You ain't nothing, all right? (laughs) After the resurrection of Jesus, James, his brother, went, yep, you are who you say you are. And so James, in Acts chapter 15, James stands up, and here's what he says. He says, therefore... My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The way the NIV says it is this. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. And in this moment, they make a decision as a church. Now, it only took them 15 chapters in the book of Acts, all right? Took them a few years to get to this point. But finally, the church fathers, the original apostles, the people at the Jerusalem church would have been like the main campus of all the churches. They finally begin to get it through their skull. You know what? I think this is a movement for all people and not just our people. And so then, apparently, they had a little meeting with Paul and the other apostles. And Paul says, okay, let's divide up the entire world, all right? Uh, You guys take Jerusalem, and I'll take everything else. Ready, break. And then from that moment, Paul begins to go on missionary journeys. And Paul begins to plant churches everywhere he went. And Paul planted a church in Ephesus, and he would say things like this for this church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says these words, For he himself, that's Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In other words, when you come into faith in Christ and you join a local church, a local faith family, there are no more divisions because of where you were born or where your parents are from or any of those things, those walls of hostility have been broken down. And so when we started the Church of 1122, I believe that we are to be a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you, that is not what I was taught, not only in the racist South as I was coming up, it wasn't even what I was taught like in seminary, theologically sure, between different races, but, but it was not what I was taught in regards to the, the organization of church and the church growth machine and those kind of things. Here's what I was taught. I was taught the homogeneous unit growth principle. That's what I was taught. I was taught you reach who you are. I was taught that you've got to establish your target audience. You've got to establish your target audience. You move into a neighborhood, you figure out the predominant audience in that neighborhood, and then you put a target around them, and then you mold everything at your church to meet the felt needs of that particular target. That's what I was taught. In fact, um, I was taught you should give that target a name that this is what we were supposed to do, that we were supposed to calm the community and figure out who lives here and what everybody's into and all of that, and then we were supposed to know who 1122 Ed is. And so this is it. Now, this is dated because this is when I was taught it, but here would be 1122 Ed. He's well-educated. He likes his job. He likes where he lives. He's into health. 
He'd rather be in a large group than a small one. He's skeptical of organized religion. Uh, he prefers casual over formal. This is it. Now, here's, what, here's the thing if we target Ed. That's great if you're Ed. Can I tell you the problem with that? This. So we decided on a target for 1122. Here's the target for the church of 1122. That's it. That's it. So if you live on the earth, now listen, man, if people start living on Mars, we'll expand our target. You understand? <laughs> if it's some kind of ET something, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a verse for that. God's going to have to save them without us, all right? But we are a movement for all people. <clears throat> and it doesn't just mean all kind of people. Also, in 2005, I went to a church growth conference of one of the greatest communicators in the world. I listen to him all the time. He's a phenomenal communicator. And he's probably 10 or 15 years older than me, so I don't know if this is a generational thing or I don't know what it is, but he stands up in front of a bunch of young, hungry ministers like me, younger, and he says, you've got to make a fundamental decision in your church. Are you going to keep people or are you going to reach people? And basically what he was talking is you don't exist to make church people happy. Are you going to keep people or are you going to reach people? And I'm telling you, that thing bothered me, and I was like, I I don't know that it's an either or. I think I'm going to reject your false dichotomy of it's either keep or reach. And that thing bothered me, bothered me for a long time, you know, because it was really popular. Like, hey, we're, we're a church for unchurched people. And I'm like, well, what happens when they become church people? Then what do you do? Like, get out of here. We're not for you. Like, what? you know, the, the, the imperative in the Great Commission, you know what it is? Make disciples. That's what it is. So how do you make disciples of people, you know? Bothered me like crazy. And then God gave me a divine revelation sitting on my couch. I wasn't praying. I wasn't singing worship songs. I was not reading my Bible. I was watching Shrek. <laughs> I was watching Shrek with JP. And I think it was the third one or the, I don't know. It was one of the Shreks, all right? There were like 19 of them. We'd seen it probably 350 times, but it was great. And here's what I liked about watching Shrek. I like it. What's not to like about Shrek? It's funny. There's action. You know, there's all that. You know what else? JP, I don't know how old he was at that point, you know? And he loved watching Shrek. And I'm sitting there, and Puss in Boots makes a joke that goes right over JP's head and smacks me right in the face. And I was like, <laughs> he goes, what are you laughing at? I'm like, oh, nothing. I'll tell you when you're older. <laughs> and then Shrek makes a joke, and JP cracks up. And in that moment, I thought, is Shrek a kid movie or an adult movie? It's both. Well, if whoever makes Shrek can reach multiple audiences, then don't you think the Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, can both keep people and reach people? So that's why we deepen and discover a relationship with Jesus Christ. So here's what this means in regards to all people. If you are brand new and you're just getting the cellophane off your Bible, good news. I'm going to try to communicate this in a way that you'll be like... That makes sense. And if you're the biggest Bible nerd in here, you come in here with multiple translations and Greek and Hebrew, and you were in Sunday school with Moses, praise God, because you know what we're going to do? We're going to dig into the, water, to the, to the word of God, and we will never water down anything or soften the edges. That's not my job. We're going to disciple, disciple, disciple. And the number one way that you can discover or that you can deepen your relationship with Jesus is help other people discover theirs. And so that's why we are a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, all that was just intro. So if you get to Acts chapter 16, 
I'm going to go so fast. I hope. Here's why that's important. Acts chapter 16 is the application of what they decided in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, I think for the first time, the, the leaders of the church went, you know what? This isn't just for our people. This is for all people. And the apostle Paul goes, that's all I needed. And boom, he is out the door. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul is going to start planting churches. He's going to plant a church in Philippi. And immediately the first three people in this church in Philippi, which was the first church in the Roman province, which was the move of the church going to England. We're going to get diversity like you've never seen before. So if you pick it up in verse 11, it says this. So. Setting sail for Troas, we, that's Luke and Paul and some other people, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, however you say that, and and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, that's important, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira and a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So Paul and Luke and Silas and some other folks, they show up to town and they're like, we're going to plant a church. Where do we go? We're going to go to the women's prayer group. They're doing like a Beth Moore Bible study. Let's go there. And so they show up and here's Lydia. Now Lydia, here's what we know about Lydia. Lydia is well-educated. Lydia is Asian. We know that because she's from Thyatira. Lydia's white collar. She's the CEO of her Purple Goods Incorporated. She's a religious woman. She's at a religious gathering. She's very, very moral. She's very, very successful, but she's never surrendered her life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins to have a conversation with her, probably a very intellectual, theologically deep conversation. And then it says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well. And she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. That's some of her CEO skills right there. She says, we need to plant a church at my house, Paul. And so they do. So listen, God uses a sermon at a religious service to open the eyes of this good kind of spiritual seeker. And that's where she meets Jesus. So let me tell you, if that's you, if you kind of grew up in church and you're good at being good and you're moral and you've got a nice family, doing great at work and, and you know, you kind of been out of trouble, but you've never laid down your life for Jesus, you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I've got good news that you're welcome here because you are a part of the all people. And in fact, that's where a bunch of you came from. You grew up in church, you grew up in Bible studies, you grew up in Sunday school, but it wasn't until Jesus opened your heart and you realized, oh my gosh, I've been trying to be good instead of surrendering my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you are that kind of seeker, good news, this church is for you. And so Lydia gets saved. Here's the next one, verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. But she wasn't doing this like a attaboy. She was, she was aggravating in verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, can I just confess I'm so glad that little phrase is in the scriptures, okay? 
Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So the first person was Lydia, super well-educated, white collar. Now you get this slave girl. She's not educated. She's Greek. She's no collar. She's a slave. She's a train wreck of her life. She's demon possessed. She is controlled by something else. I can promise you this. The life that she is living was not her plan. When she was in sixth grade and they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? She did not say, I want to be a demon possessed slave prostituted out by some other men that control me. She was abused, embarrassed. And you know what? For some of you, that's your story. That's your story. And I've got great news for you. Welcome home. Because this is a movement for all people and you're a part of the all people. And one of the primary ways some of us have met Jesus is he met us in the lowest of lowest of lows. And an intellectual discussion of what the gospel is may not have done it for us, but what saved her was a supernatural experience of freedom in Christ. And for some of you, that's how you met Jesus here. And for some of you, that's how you're gonna meet Jesus. And that thing that is controlling you by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's gonna break that control and you're gonna be free to surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the second member of the church here. And then, it doesn't stop there, verse 19. But when her owner saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off and they gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So listen, Paul and Silas are part of the church too. So some of you are sold out for Jesus. I mean, you are. You wake up singing hymns to God. Your prayer life is legit. You've been walking with the Lord for a long time. You are mature in your faith. And I've got really good news for you. You're a part of the all people too. We are not forsaking you for the sake of anybody else. Part of my job as the lead pastor or lead shepherd here is to also make sure that you get fed and loved and cared for. And one of the best ways for you to get fed as a mature Christian is to start feeding some other people because you know how to eat. So Paul and Silas are a part of this thing too. Verse 26, and then suddenly there was a great earthquake. And so the foundation of the prison was shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Verse 27, and then the jailer, he woke up and he saw the prison doors were open and he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself. The reason why is because in Rome, if you lost your prisoners, you would be be tortured and abused before they killed you. So he was gonna take the easy way out. Supposing that the prisoners has escaped, verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights, and he rushed in, and he, trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought him out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his household, and he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family, and he brought them up into the house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. So the jailer, here's the fourth person, guess what? He, uh, if Lydia's white collar and the slave girl's no collar, this brother's blue collar, and he's not at a religious event, 
nor did he have a supernatural experience. Honestly, he's just minding his own business at work one day. He did not wake up one day and go, I wonder what I must do to be saved. No, he just went to work. And he's Roman, and he, and, but what he does, he's kind of a spiritual slacker. He's not looking for God. He's not really running from God. He's just kind of doing his thing. He's just going to work. He's just, honestly, he's your average Jacksonville guy. And at work one day, he bumps into these guys that he had probably been abusing. And when the walls fall down and they could have run for their lives, they sit there in obedience because Jesus hadn't told them to run yet. And he comes in and he, here's what happens. Because of their obedience to, to God Almighty, he sees something in them that strangely in himself he wants. And so he's drawn to them and he says, okay, what do I do to get in? He's just your average blue collar guy. This, this. This is the beginning of the church at Philippi. Remember, that's where they ran into Lydia and she started the church in her house. If you've been around Bible study, maybe you are familiar with the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is later, Paul from prison writes a letter to this church that got planted right here. And it starts with a rich woman, a blue collar guy just going to work one day and meets Jesus and this slave girl. They meet them in three different ways. They're totally three different classes of people and color people. I mean, they are, they are a mix of all kind of people in the beginning here in this church. And then, if you go to Philippians chapter two, here's what Paul says to that church. Again, the core team of this church is as diverse as you could, I mean, it looks like a PBS commercial, you understand? <laughs> and Paul says to that church of all different kind of people, he says this, so... If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. In other words, if you're really a Christian, verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only at his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having, and, and people are like, well, how are we going to do that, man? These people here are so different. I don't understand their customs. I don't understand their ways. I offend them, and I don't even mean to. How do we do that? He says, have this same mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, you can do this because Jesus is in you. You see, from the very beginning, the church was a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. That means... All people, can you imagine, can you imagine how this city might be different, especially in these current tumultuous times? If when people opened up the doors of whatever campus they go to, and when they looked in, they saw a sign of the picture of heaven and something in them went, I want that. That they did not have the experience that was on the video. They had the exact opposite experience. They experienced the love of God because of the unity at the church of 1122 or whatever church they attended. Can you imagine? You see, because when I say all people, I mean all colors and all backgrounds and all socioeconomic classes and all educational levels. That means Republicans and Democrats and independents and libertarians. That means all orientations. That means hunters and vegans. That means all religious backgrounds, all denominations. That means bulldogs, Seminoles, and even that team. All of us. Not that we would bring that to the table so that we could be that, but we would bring that to the table and lay it down at the feet of Jesus and say, we are one in Jesus. You see, and Paul keeps going in Philippians chapter two. Here's what he does. 
After he says, look, be one in mind, be one in spirit. Have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Then he goes on. By the time he gets to chapter 2, verse 14, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Like, quit complaining and arguing with each other. Just treat one another as better than yourselves. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you will shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. You want to be a movement for all people? You want to change our city, change our world? It starts with us by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ always being a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Would you please stand to your feet and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you and I praise you for the work that you've done in my very own life. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of all people to help us understand that we cannot simultaneously fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, while at the same time look down our nose at any other person that's been created in your image. Lord, I pray for a supernatural unity of the church of 1122. God, I pray that we would be one as you and the Father are one, God. And I pray, God, I pray that we would always, always be a movement for all people, that all people that walk in to this movement would experience the love of God that would transcend all understanding. And Holy Spirit, in this moment, Lord, I pray that you would even do a healing work in the hearts and the souls of men and women who have not had that experience at a church. God, churches are full of broken people. They're led by broken people. And so churches are gonna break stuff. And so God, I pray that you would protect us from us so that all people would be able to discover and deepen a relationship with you. We pray this in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, church, we're gonna respond. We respond by singing together. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings, our first and our best, because he is first and best. And we respond by praying, by praying. Listen, if the Holy Spirit is stirring something in you, come lay it down. Just come lay it down. If there's some parts of you that want to get defensive, love and defensiveness do not coexist together very well. And so just allow the Spirit to do that work. Just receive what the Helper is trying to do in you. If you need to come repent because your walk with Jesus hasn't really been for all people to discover and deepen, then come on. If you need to repent to a person or say you're sorry, do whatever. Come on and pray. Let us respond.